You are about to listen to one of the five sample lessons for the Arizona Real Estate Salesperson Exam Prep audio lessons. The full length of this series of audio lessons is 8 hours and 42 minutes and consists of 20 individual lessons to help you prepare for the Arizona Real Estate Salesperson Exam. If you like these lessons, you might consider going and buying the full bundle of audio lessons at the website reexampodcast.com. Thank you. Welcome to this lesson entitled Types of Property and Land Use. In this lesson, we'll be talking about all sorts of things having to do with how land is used and how property is used and some of the nuances of different terms that you might hear in real estate. So let's go ahead and get started. We'll talk about the difference between land, real estate, real property, and personal property, what fixtures are, what the bundle of rights means. We'll talk about emblems, the physical and economic characteristics of land. Then we'll talk about different types of zones and exceptions to zones. So let's go ahead and get started. So first, we just have the term land. And as you might expect, land is literally just the surface of the earth. It's what is naturally there. If You, you can own land, but that's all it means. You, you literally just own the surface of the earth, the things that are below the earth there, and all natural things that are permanently attached to it or in the air above it. That's typically what it means when you own land. However, it's not the same as owning real estate. In order for it to be real estate, you own the land plus all man-made structures that are permanently attached to the land. Sometimes we know we call these man-made structures improvements. So real estate, you, for it to be real estate, you actually have to have something built on the land. If it's just land, that's just the surface of the air and any subsurface or air rights that go with it. If you have something on the land, then it's actually real estate. However, there's another category that your ownership can fall into, and that's called real property. And it's not considered real property until you not only have the real estate, plus a bundle of rights that come with the property. So you don't have the rights, you don't have real property. So you can see how it all kind of built on, the, on each other. First you have just the land, and then the real estate is the land plus the improvements, and the real property is the real estate plus the land is the real estate plus the bundle of rights. That of course includes the land. And then we need also to make the distinction between real property and personal property. So personal property are non-permanent possessions that are not real estate. They can be tangible or intangible. So tangible being things that you pick up and see and sense with your senses, a car, uh, your clothing, appliances. Those are all considered pieces of personal property. You have intangible things of personal property as well, such as stocks and bonds or things that you can't see, but nevertheless are actually property and have value. So you need to consider those things personal property as well. So the next thing I want to talk about are fixtures. Now, fixtures are personal property that has been permanently attached to the land, usually on purpose. So think about it. What are some things that are personal property that the people bring in onto their land permanently attached there? See if you can think of a few things. What might have come to mind? So playground equipment is one. You take the swings and the slide and whatever else, 
and you pour in some cement and you anchor them to the ground so that they're not moving anymore. They're permanently attached to the land. That can be considered a fixture. It was just personal property, but then it could become part of the real property, the now a permanent man-made structure. Another one is a pool. Yeah, you can take a, a pool, you bring it in, and you permanently attach it to your land. Then it becomes a fixture. A fence is another great one. So it starts out as just you know wood or metal or whatever you make the fence out of. But then you go and you permanently attach it to your land. It becomes a fixture. So all of those are great examples of a fixture. Here's a good question. What about an RV, a recreational vehicle? Do you think that's considered real property or personal property? Why would you think that? Well, in this case, you got to look at the definition of personal property. It's something that is not permanently attached to the land. So it can't be real property. Even though it's something that you could live in, it's mobile. And so it is considered personal property still, even though it can be used as a residence. So when we talked about real property, we talked about this concept of the bundle of rights. A bundle of rights is just a grouping of rights that you get when you purchase the property. The bundle of rights can be different depending on the situation. Typically, if you're outright buying the property, then you, by default, get all of the rights. But you can also opt to just buy some of the rights or give some of your rights to other people. That's definitely possible. If you are just leasing or renting a property, then you don't get all of the rights. So you only are given some of the rights. You get the right to occupy the place, but you couldn't sell it yourself because you don't have that right. You can't destroy it because it's not yours to destroy. It still doesn't ultimately belong to you. You just have the right to go ahead and live there while the lease contract is in effect. That's a good thing to remember. So let's talk about what are some of these rights that you could possibly get. So the first is ownership, possession. You actually own the property. It is yours. You can do what you want with it. Using the property. So if you own it, then that usually means that you're allowed to use it unless you are leasing it out to someone else, in which case you temporarily give up your usage right, but not your ownership right. You still own the property but you're letting somebody else use it for a particular period of time. You have the right to encumber your property. I think we'll talk a little bit about more in a different lesson about encumbrances. You have the right of exclusion, meaning you can say, I don't want this particular person or people to come onto my property. You can exclude people from your property if you wish. It's your private property. Destruction, you're allowed to destroy your property. Let's say you own a piece of property but it's getting really old and kind of dangerous and you want to knock it down and build something better on that same lot. That is your right if you have the right of destruction. You also can have the right of transfer. That means that you can transfer the property's ownership or different rights of the property to someone else. You can sell the property, you can rent it out, you could donate it to someone or something. You can assign it to someone or bequeath it. That means you leave it in a will to one of your heirs. Another thing that you can do. These are all considered forms of transfer. We also talk about things such as the surface rights and the subsurface rights. The surface rights being the things that are on top of the ground, the things that are on the surface of the earth having the rights to those things. And then we have the subsurface rights, sub meaning below, like a submarine. Submarine being below the water. Subsurface meaning below the ground. So sometimes there are valuable things below the ground, such as different fuels, minerals, gold, 
whatever happens to be below the ground. So sometimes you discover something on your land that is valuable, but you don't personally have ability to capitalize on that. Say you found some oil on your property and you don't personally have the equipment to extract the oil. You can sell your just your subsurface rights to some place that would be able to do that. And then they would pay you for those rights and then they'd be able to make a profit off the oil that they extract. So sometimes those go separately from the rest of the rights. We also have the air rights, those are the, air, the rights to the surface, right to the space above your property. And then we have two different kinds of water rights. And the different kinds of water rights depend on whether the body of water, a flowing body of water, such as a river, or a still body of water, such as a lake or an ocean. So we have what is called riparian water rights. Those describe the rights you have if you have a flowing body of water that goes through or next to your property. So easy way to remember that is riparian starts with R and that is the same initial letter in the word river. A river is a flowing body of water. So riparian water rights are those for flowing bodies of water. And luckily this works just as well for the other form of water rights called littoral water rights. L like lake as are for still bodies of water. They're not flowing. And so these describe the rights that you have if your property is a lake or is next to a lake or to that. Another term you might hear are called emblements. And that is just kind of a, that's just a fancy word for crops or growing plants that are on the property. So these are considered personal property when we look at them under the law. So if you have emblements on your property, they are considered part of your personal property distinction to make. So I want to talk a little bit more about land itself. Land has particular characteristics that make it a sort of unique commodity. We talk about the physical characteristics of land. So the physical characteristics of land are immobility, indestructibility, and non-homogeneity. Those are a few things that describe land. So first, immobility. Land is where it is. You're not going to be able to move it to a different place. Once something is there, it's typically considered permanent. Indestructibility. You can take away little bits of the land, but the land itself is not something you're going to destroy. Land is not destructible. Also, the last term might need a little bit more explanation is non-homogeneity. And if something is homogeneous, that means it's all the same. If you produce something in a factory, all the goods are typically homogeneous. They all are supposed to be identical. But with land, there's absolutely no two parcels of land that are exactly homogeneous. It has non-homogeneity. No matter what, two, there are no two pieces of land that are exactly alike. Even if they're similar, you know, they're, you've got a great big field that's just flat and with grass on it. Each lot that you carve up in there is not going to be quite the same as the, all the other lots. If for nothing else, then it's relative position. It's not exactly located in the same spot. So that's a good thing to remember. So those are the physical characteristics of land that make it what it is. We also then have the economic characteristics of land. The first is scarcity. The rarer a kind of piece of land is, the more valuable it will be. If it's more desirable because it's scarce, then people will be willing to pay more for it. The next is that it can have improvements on it. The more improvements 
that a piece of land has on it or valuable that piece of land typically is. Permanence, so another economic characteristic is also related to that sort of indestructibility and mobility is that something is permanently there. Once you built on it there, it's considered a permanent structure, which is not always the case with other things that you buy and sell. The next is a term called situs, and that just means that it can belong to different jurisdictions, such as a state, a county, a town, a school district. Those all fall under the concept of situs. Another characteristic is the highest and best use. Say that land can be used for any number of different purposes, but there is usually a highest and best use of land. That's something that the property will be very best for, whether it's best because of its location and characteristics of being a place for residences, whether it's a good place that's remote for um, making industrial properties, and so on and so forth. So if a property is being used for its highest and best use, it will have the most value. And if it's not being used for its highest and best use, then it's not going to be as valuable as it perhaps might be otherwise. So let's shift gears a little bit. We're going to talk about some of the land use planning. So we talked about different characteristics of land. There are people who sit down and talk about how best to use land. We talked about the highest and best use. If this is not planned out, then there will, there will be a lot of waste. There will be a lot of area that is not used for its highest and best use. And so you are leaving some potential on the table, so to speak. These people that, that sit down and look at a community, people in charge of the, the zoning commission, as they're often called, will usually create what's called a master plan. And that is a long-term growth plan about what the community wants to do, where they want to put their residences, where they want to put places for businesses, for industry, for infrastructure, for government buildings, for public buildings. They all lay this out in a master plan and make sure that the particular community is growing sustainably. It's not growing too fast so that you can keep up with building all of the public services and utilities and whatever that are needed and that the traffic doesn't get too bad, but also that it's not growing too slow, that you're not leaving potential resources untapped. So the zoning commission will get together and discuss a master plan. You can tweak this as time goes on. But basically what the zoning commission does is they look at different parcels of land and they assign a zone and each zone says what is allowed, what is permitted to be built on that particular area, what kind of property is allowed there. Let's talk a little bit about the different kinds of zones that they have to choose. The first kind of zone we're talking about is a residential zone. Residential zone just being residences, places where people live and there's definitely different between the not only what's there but how dense it is allowed to be. For example, dense residential would be like apartment buildings where there's a bunch of apartments packed into a small space. That's dense residential. Then we have sort of a medium tier where maybe you've got a bunch of townhomes that are pretty close together but not packed in as densely as like a high-rise building. And then we have residential that is a low-density residential where family homes or you've got scattered houses, that sort of thing. So you also have to think about the density and not just the type. That also goes for commercial. Commercial being that there are businesses there, whether they're tightly packed or whether they're just one here, one there. It's business space. That's different than industrial. In industrial, you've got things for industries, warehouses and factories. That's different 
than commercial. They're not like actually selling the products there. They're perhaps making the products or storing the products there, but not actually selling the products. Then we have what's called agricultural. If you can imagine agriculture, that is farmland. It's places where you can grow orchards or raise animals or whatever. That's agricultural. Then we've got public use. Public use just being for public parks or other public spaces, public buildings that are for everybody. And then finally, special use that it's something like a government building or some other special kind of building that doesn't fall in categories. Now there's different exceptions that you can get from. So for example, if you feel like there's a good reason for you to have a non-conforming use, you can go to the zoning commission and ask for an exception. So non-conforming use meaning that what you have built it doesn't conform to the zoning laws of where you are. And that can be okay sometimes, especially if you're sort of grandfathered in, like you had something there before, but then the zoning laws changed and, oh, you've got a, a business right in the middle of a residential zone. Or that can often looked over and they can say, no, that's okay. You've had that there for a long time. We're not going to make you stop having your business there because the zoning changed. And you can get different other exceptions, variances and special exceptions. You can get exceptions for how large something is allowed to be. Under zoning ordinances, sometimes they say, well, how, how tall or how large is something allowed to be? You can get exceptions to that. You can get exceptions about what type of building you're allowed to build there and so on and so forth. So let's go ahead and go back and I'll have you quiz yourself, see how you're doing. Are you able to answer these questions? Then it's a pretty good chance that you'll be just fine with this material. So you can go ahead and move on. If not, you might need to review a little bit before circling back around. All right, so my first question is, what's the difference between land and real estate? Between land and real estate. So land is just literally the surface of the earth. It doesn't have any improvements on it. So that's what makes it different than real estate. And then real estate has some sort of man-made structure on it. So that you're able then to go ahead and own the structure as well as just the surface of the earth in that particular location. My next question is then, what's the difference between real estate and real property? So the difference there is that the real property comes with a bundle of rights. They're rights that come with the land and the man-made structures. We talked a little bit about those bundle of rights. So you've got some of those bundle in with the land and the structures. And how is that different from personal property? What is personal property? So personal property is just non-permanent possessions that aren't real estate, such as clothing, cars, furniture, appliances. All those things are considered personal property and not real property, because real property is the real estate with a bundle of rights. Next question is, what is a fixture? How do you know if something is a fixture? So a fixture is a piece of personal property that has become permanently affixed to the land. 
So what are some examples of fixtures? What are some things that could be fixtures? So there are all sorts of things that can be fixtures. For example, a set of playground equipment, those can be fixtures. We have pools and fences, those can definitely be fixtures. All sorts of things can be fixtures as long as they are permanently attached to the land. My next question is, what are some of the bundle of rights that an owner can have? I talk about the bundle of rights. What am I talking about? There are all sorts of rights. We've got the right of ownership and possession, the right to use the property, the right to encumber the property, to exclude other people from the property that you don't want there. You can get the right to destroy the property, the right to transfer the property, so that could be selling, renting, donating, or bequeathing the property. You can get the surface rights or the subsurface rights, the air rights, the property, and then the riparian and littoral water rights. So the question is, what's the difference between having littoral water rights and riparian water rights? So in this case, riparian water rights are those for flowing bodies of water, such as rivers, and littoral water rights are those for still bodies of water, such as lakes. My next question is, what are emblems, and are they considered real property or personal property? Emblements, that's just another word for crops, and they are considered personal property, not part of your real property. My next question is, what are the physical characteristics of land? There were three characteristics we talked about. What are those three characteristics? So in this case, we have immobility, indestructibility and non-homogeneity. Those are the physical characteristics of land. What are then some of the economic characteristics of land that we talked about? We talked about scarcity, improvements, permanence, situs, and the highest and best use of the property. My next question is, what is a master plan? And who makes a master plan for a community? So a master plan is usually done by the zoning commission. They go in and they figure out sort of a sustainable growth plan for the community and talk about what's going to go where and when and all sorts of things to make a, a long-term road map for a particular community. And so they, they talk about different types of zones. So what are zones? What are some different types of zones that you might see? So zones just tell you what kind of property is going to be allowed to be built where. So for example, we have 
residential zones, we've got commercial zones, we have industrial zones. These are all different types of zones that you'll probably run into. Agricultural zones, we also have public use zones and special use zones. So my next question then is, what's the difference between a residential zone, a commercial zone, and an industrial zone? So a residential zone is just a place where people live. Then we have the commercial zone where people have businesses. And finally, the industrial zone where people have factories and warehouses and different things having to do with industry. Good. So my next question is, what does it mean if you apply for a non-conforming use exception? What does that mean? So a non-conforming use just means that whatever it is you have doesn't conform to the zoning where it is. And so this often happens when zoning changes over time. There might be a business that's suddenly in the middle of a residential zone. It's been there so long they go ahead and approve the non-conforming use of that particular business. And finally, for my last question, I want you just to sum up the basic rationale behind land use controls. Why do we have land use controls in the first place? Why does the government use its power in this way? How is that helping people? See if you can summarize that in your own words. So basically, you're looking at something like the following. You're saying it's meant to go ahead and preserve resources. You're using your resources in the best way possible, in the most logical way. Any community has a finite amount of space, of water, and access to different things. And you're trying to figure out what the most logical use of those things are so that people's lives are better, so that everybody has as equal as possible access to their needs and wants. So that growth can also be sustainable, that it's not going to peter out because you didn't plan well enough. So that's the basic underlying philosophy behind land use controls. And that's all for our lesson for today. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you learned from this last audio lesson. And if you did, you might consider buying the full bundle of audio lessons at reexampodcast.com. Best of luck in your studies.